Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Making the Mountain is a quarterly artist talk in partnership with Lighthouse Writers Workshop. It's about how and why art gets made in Colorado. Presenters across genres tell the story of how they came to love their medium, explain their process, and show their work. Previous speakers have ranged from a tattoo artist to a poet and have included Ryan Warner, the host of Colorado Matters, Morgan Levy, photographer, and Caitlin Skilkin, chef at Vare Kitchen. On November 6, 2015, the presenters were Stephanie Wolf, former ballerina and radio producer, Louis Ferreira, painter, and Carl Sorensen, drummer. This is our eighth Making the Mountain. And for a long time, that first-person plural was rhetorically ambitious. But Lighthouse has become a true collaborator for this event. Making the Mountain wouldn't exist without its help and support. As for tonight, this Making the Mountain wouldn't exist without our presenters. We'll hear from Stephanie Wolf, an ex-ballerina and current radio producer, Lou Ferreira, I'm sorry, Lou, um, a, a painter, and Carl Sorensen, a drummer. The premise of Making the Mountain is that three artists tell us who they are. When I met with Lou to ask him that question, he said there's no answer. Or rather, any one-sentence answer would be a lie. And he's right. I'm often asked why I started this event, and my responses are approximations of the truth. I can say in one sentence that I wanted to meet other artists, or that I wanted to not talk about CrossFit for a night. (laughs) Another answer is that I saw three acts, two dancers, one radio host. If you haven't seen it, the title explains a lot. It's Ira Glass with dancers and two intermissions. So when I met Stephanie Wolf, a former professional ballerina with a career in radio, I thought, this is it. This is the presenter I made the event for. But Stephanie's relationship with dance is different than Ira Glass's. She's a journalist now, but dance is not a novelty for her. She struggled to express herself in both mediums. As a dancer, she aspired to be a muse. Now as a radio, radio producer, she's searching for her own voice. I stand by the lie about three acts. That production showed me that whatever form, all artists share something. And it's not just big things like searching for a true aesthetic or illusions of grandeur. The similarities can exist in the process. For for instance, Lou's portraits are composed of small fragments. Up close, his canvas is filled with triangles of color, but from far away, a person emerges. That interplay between small and large happens with sentences and stories with, and with sounds and songs. Three acts isn't the whole reason I started making the mountain. I also wanted to hear the stories of people who don't usually tell theirs. And we don't hear from drummers. Carl has built a reputation as the hardest working drummer in Denver, but you probably don't know who he is. In part, that's because he sees himself as setting the rhythm for someone else's vision. His job is to serve the music. For a while, Three Acts was also my inspiration or excuse for not recording Making the Mountain. Their show has never been taped, and it changes with each production. We live in an age where almost every experience can be replayed. Their event was intentionally ephemeral, and it made me more present that night. I like the idea of each Making the Mountain being an experience you had to be there for. But for the first time, as Dan mentioned, we're recording, and to those listening as you wash the dishes or walk the dog... I hope you can catch some of the ephemeral magic here tonight. To all of you here now, I hope you can stay in the moment as we hear the stories and the lies of Stephanie, Lou, and Carl. Our first speaker is Stephanie. Hi, guys. So I interviewed the FBI Denver Division, the head of the FBI Denver Division, about a month ago. I first spoke with Thomas Ravenal over the phone, and I asked him questions about a recent sex trafficking sting. He came to the CPR, Colorado Public Radio Studios, several days later for the live on-air interview, and true to his interrogative nature, he started to ask me questions. Questions like, how long have you worked here? How long have you been in journalism? What did you do before CPR? And that became the moment that I had to tell the head of the FBI Denver Division that I used to be a ballet dancer. You should have seen his expression. So to tell the story of how I came to work in radio, I have to start with how I became a dancer because the two are very interconnected. I'm not one of those people who started dance lessons at three and immediately fell in love. I wouldn't say, quote, 
I came out of the womb dancing, which we hear so often, or that I danced around the house all the time begging my parents to put me in ballet. But I did grow up with an artistic aptitude because my mother was a visual artist and an art teacher. So the creative bent was inherited, and she surrounded me with arts early on. I first found myself in a pair of ballet slippers at five, but due to my family's financial strain, I had to unenroll, and I didn't go back to dance until I was eight. At that point, my main motivation to go to a jazz class at the local rec center was because my best friend was taking it. Actually, I wasn't even really that into it at first, even though we danced to some of my favorite bands like The Police. Um, and to, in a brutally honest moment, when I started to enjoy dance, it's because my instructors, they told me I was good at it. So once a week became twice, three, four times a week. And at 10, I added ballet classes and eventually changed schools so that I could go on point. See, I was an incredibly shy kid, and dance became this amazing vehicle to have a voice without saying anything at all. My mom loves to tell this story about when I performed my first solo. I was 13, and it was the most obnoxious classical polka music you ever heard. But it was my first tutu, and that was a special moment, and I just I soaked up every moment of it. Things accelerated from there. I started going to summer dance programs that were hosted by professional ballet companies, and that's when I realized dance could be a career. I could do it professionally. So my senior year of high school, I left my home in Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to the Houston Ballet Academy to train. My time in Houston was very eye-opening. I not only learned how to improve on my ballet technique, I learned how to take care of myself. And it was my first glimpse into the professional world of ballet. After Houston came a long stint with Minnesota Ballet in Duluth, my first professional gig. Then I joined James Sewell Ballet in Minneapolis, and from Minnesota, I followed a case of Wonderless all the way to New York City. That's where I worked with a number of pickup companies as well as the Metropolitan Opera, and I spent a summer season dancing with Ballet Montana. This is obviously the cliff notes to my dance career. I should backtrack at this point, though, because when I left Minnesota Ballet in 2008, I auditioned for a company called Ballet Nouveau Colorado. Some of you may know this group as Wonderbound now. I didn't get the job then, but the company intrigued me, so I kept in touch with the directors, eventually auditioning two more times. I still didn't get the job. <laughs> then in the summer of 2012, while visiting my sister in Denver, who's over there, by the way, I received a call from the director, Garrett Ammon, and he offered me a position with the company. At the time, I lived in New York, and since I spent a large part of my performing career pining for this job, I did something I had become very good at. I sold most of my belongings, I packed several suitcases, and I moved cross-country. Again, this was actually my fifth cross-country move. All of them had been for dance. Unfortunately, things didn't go as I had hoped in Denver. About two months into the season, I began to feel pain in my right leg. I was 30 at that point, and so something always hurt in my body, and I wrote it off as the usual soreness or ache. That was until I really couldn't ignore it anymore, and I finally went to the doctor when walking became incredibly difficult. The official diagnosis, which took about six weeks to pinpoint, a spiral fracture to my right femur and torn tissue in my corresponding hip. And yes, I have heard that the femur is one of the most difficult bones in your body to break, yet I did it, and sillyly danced on a broken leg for a month. So my doctors pulled me just days before opening night of the Wonderbound Fall Show. I don't really know the exact cause. I had a bad fall in rehearsal about a month before. It could have been that. It could have been I wasn't eating enough to support my crazy dance schedule. It didn't really matter. The immediate treatment was time off and pain medication. My doctors put me on crutches, and a few weeks in, I began physical therapy. I became reliant on others for simple tasks like going to the grocery store, or carrying a coffee cup across the room. I gained weight. I felt betrayed by my body, frustrated with my physical limitations, anxious about the future, and jealous of my colleagues' able bodies and busy dancing schedules. It soon became very clear to me. This injury would cost me my job, and subsequently it would cost me my career. I wasn't ignorant that a dance career can end unexpectedly. I had started taking steps to prepare for life post-dancing, I went back to school while I was in New York to finish my undergrad, and my first class back was English composition. 
I always loved writing, and the class was the first time that somebody took note of my writing. So my professor encouraged me to think about it professionally, and he encouraged me to submit my work. So I did. And then the craziest thing happened. I actually got small writing gigs, and I got more small writing gigs. So when I found myself in rehab and with way more free time than I was ever, ever used to, I focused on school and I focused on writing. Leaving the dance world was way more difficult than I had ever anticipated, mostly because of how it ended. Dance had consumed so much of my life, so I mourned the loss and I still mourn it at times. It was like an awful breakup, certainly the worst I've ever gone through. But like all breakups, you do eventually move on. So after the 2012-2013 Wonderbound season, I took an internship with KDVR, Fox 31 Denver. Yes, I took an internship at 30, an unpaid one. I came in on the weekends or from 5 a.m. to noon on the weekdays, and I bought an Associated Press style book, and I taught myself the basics. It eventually led to a part-time job with the digital desk there. All the while, I continued to do freelance projects for magazines and websites, and I wondered if grad school was a viable option. The day after Thanksgiving of that year, I got an email. It was from Chloe Veltman, then the arts editor at Colorado Public Radio. She was looking for a dance writer. Rebecca mentioned three acts, two dancers, one radio host, a collaboration between Ira Glass and choreographers Monica Bill Barnes and Anna Bass. This is the part of my story where that very show comes into play. After that first assignment, Chloe asked me to write more dance articles for CPR. Then she suggested we meet in person. So at a sushi restaurant in Lakewood, Chloe told me about this crazy idea that she had after seeing that production when it toured to Denver. She had the chance to speak with Glass and asked him if he thought dance could work on the radio. He said, no, it's a visual art form. So Chloe wanted to figure out a way to make it work. When you strip away the visual of dance, what remains? Are there ways to choreograph dance specifically for the radio? These are just a few of the questions that we talked about that very night at the restaurant. Then she asked for my help. I was intrigued. I was pretty excited. Of course, I said yes. And it was that project, what came to be known as Radio Dances, that changed things for me. We went into it blindly, developing the concept along the way and having no idea if it would work. We asked for submissions as well as curated pieces from local dance companies to perform at a live event. And while recording one of the dances for the projects, I noticed how I had to listen very intently. I had to seek out the auditory nuances of the dance in order to know where to direct the microphone. And I began to think about dance and sound differently. I received an unexpected phone call from Chloe, again, a month after the radio dances event. One of the arts reporters at CPR had resigned without notice. Chloe asked, would I be available to help the bureau until they filled the position? It would probably be a month or two, she said. And so began my crash course in radio. I remember the very first story I had to produce and edit. It was an interview with Bith Gore, who was a contestant on the NBC reality show, The Voice. And I did some research. I wrote a script, which looking back, it was probably pretty terrible. Um, Chloe recorded the interview with Biff, then emailed me a file with 30 plus minutes of tape and the instructions to edit it down to eight or nine minutes. I felt queasy, and doubt began to, crept in, began to crept in, which was an ugly emotion I was all too familiar with from my dancing days. It wasn't just the interview that made me feel sick to my stomach, but the job, temporary or not, I just didn't feel qualified. But Biff's interview somehow got edited, and it made it to the air, thanks to the help of my colleague, Corey Jones. And I didn't quit, clearly. Instead, I filed that story and moved on to the next one. I would be a liar if I said the second story was magically easier, but it did feel incrementally less daunting, as did the next and the next. So a few months turned into a few more months, which turned into a part-time position, which eventually led to a full-time position. All along, I was so surprised at how willing my colleagues were to teach me if I just asked them. Then I pitched a feature story idea at one of the weekly arts meetings, See, feature stories require multiple voices and scene tape. So the thought of taking crack, a crack at such a story both excited and terrified me. 
It was about international arts festivals in Colorado. So I got to speak with all these festival directors and performers, local artists. I collected ambient sound, which is the tape that you hear in NPR stories when they're like setting the scene. You might hear somebody cooking in the kitchen or something. I had hours and hours of tape and somehow had to turn it into a five-minute feature. So I listened back to all that and logged it, tried to find my best quotes or actualities, as we like to say in radio jargon, to weave into my story and write around. And I went through a number of drafts with Chloe. She was very patient with me on that first story. But then it came time to voice my tracks. And I thought, sure, I'm a performer. How bad can this be? It can be really bad. I was tense. My voice kept going too high. I sounded, I sounded really terrible. So Chloe suggested we try something a little different. We both stretched out on the floor, supine position, bellies up to the sky. It was a tight fit in the recording booth, so we had to position ourselves at a perpendicular angle with our heads together. And we sang my script, finding the melodic flow of international arts festival chatter. Uh, voicing continues to challenge me. And it's something my editors have been very critical about. Sometimes my southern accent likes to creep in. Sometimes I have vocal fry, which I feel like wasn't a thing until the internet made it a thing. I heard an interview with Ira Glass on a podcast called Long Form once, and he said the best radio voice is when you sound just like yourself, the same as you do off air. This is an art I'm still perfecting, as well as my radio writing chops, because in radio, we write conversationally. I've done that for this very speech. This document is full of sentence fragments and ellipses that would horrify many of my writer friends. Um, side note here, actually, since I did mention Ira Glass again, uh, the Arts Bureau reached out to him when we launched Radio Dances. We were curious to hear his thoughts, as well as Anna Bass and Monica Bill Barnes, about putting dance on the radio. We sent them a handful of our submitted pieces and, well... Here's what Ira told Chloe. I feel like when we decided to put our show together, we were making a foolhardy attempt at something that no one wanted. And then I feel like Colorado Public Radio took it to the next level. I feel like you, you went further than we did. You saw our bluff and took it further. You trumped our card with a higher Trump value. And I, I, give, I have such respect for that. I never thought this could possibly work. And I was so impressed at the number of people who just sent you in entries and the quality of some of them. I was really amazed and excited to hear. So Ira was particularly impressed with one piece. It was by a choreographer. Her name was Erica Randall. And it was actually a piece that was based off of the movie Heathers. So he decided that he wanted to award her a prize because he was so impressed with her work. Until the moment we sat down to do this interview, I had no idea I was going to be giving out a prize. <laughs> the prize I will be giving, hold on, I'm reaching into my pocket, I'm going into my wallet, will be this, this $20 bill, wow. <laughs> which will not even cover any of her costs, I'm sure. That's, that's what I got. So we took that 20 and he scribbled on it, Erica, you are number one, Radio Dances 2014, Ira Glass. And then he mailed it to her. And I really wish I could have been there when Erica received that in the mail to see what her face looked like. Uh, following Ira Glass and international arts festivals, I stayed on the arts beat for some time. In Colorado, you have certainly surprised me with your cultural offerings. I met a plein air artist who, last fall, she was on a mission to paint from the summit of every 14er in Colorado. So naturally, I joined her for a hike up Mount Elbert. Then there was the American Indian singer-songwriter and storyteller who told me at 60 she had finally found her artistic stride. And a Denver choreographer who turns her home, back alley, and a nearby empty lot into performance venues. It's been wild, and each piece, each artist, teaches me something new about myself and about telling stories with sound. Now I work with the Colorado Matters crew, and I'm a general assignment covering a range of, top of topics. And the question I probably get asked the most, besides, are you on air or do you know Ryan Warner? is where do you get your story ideas? And the answer is I get them from articles I read. I get them from being out and about. And sometimes people reach out to me. There's really no one way to find a story. It's more about learning what will work on the radio. 
So that's what motivates me to work in this medium. It's actually the same thing that has motivated many of you to be here tonight. NPR calls it the driveway moments. It's when you hear something on your radio that intrigues or moves you so much, you stay in your driveway till the end of the story. And maybe that story sparks something in you, a personal connection, or it deepens your understanding about a topic. I can't promise that I'll give you that same spark tonight, but that spark is why I make radio. I meet interesting people and hear fascinating stories every day, and then I have the honor of sharing their stories on the, on the airwaves, which I hope makes you stay in your driveway just that little bit longer. Great story, Stephanie. Um, our next presenter is Lou. Uh, th- thanks for hosting. This is pretty awesome, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, my name is Louis Ferreira, which uh, sounds um, glamorous, or, or so I thought, until I learned that it means Smith. And, and Portuguese, which is pronounced Fejeira. Uh, um, so uh, I've, I've been making art um, since I was four years old, as any little kid would do. Except I just, I simply never stopped. Um, so I guess that makes 35 years experience of, of doing that. And uh, I'm I'm going to if I would if I was going to title this talk I would title it uh, what is it like to follow the muse which is what I've been doing all this time but um, so but before I make those remarks I'd like to rifle through these just seven images real quick Um, so this first image is um, pretty much encapsulates the aesthetic that I arrived at once I graduated from uh, CU Boulder in 1998. Pretty loose. I was definitely influenced by Egon Schiele and uh, Alice Neal. But uh, the important thing to note here is uh, the clues which led me to my more unique style, uh, a kind of signature style of sorts that I finally arrived at. Um, and the thing to notice is how certain shapes are just left solid without being blended, uh, no drips. Uh, so go to the next one. So this was after a year of not painting at all. I'd hired, I'd been hired as a graphic designer, um, making better money than just, uh, <laughs> a fine artist, uh, trying to, you know, work, uh, sell, selling paintings. Um, but what happened in the meantime was a kind of um, vision of sorts. I knew that once I got back, I knew I wasn't going to stop painting. And I knew that once I got back to it, that it would be um, utilizing these shapes. And it turned out to be solely shapes, if you notice. It's all concrete um, Explicit, unique shapes. Uh, go ahead and, and go to the next one. Uh, this is the piece that I'll, I'm going to give a, a very interesting story, and it's and it's going to focus around this piece. Uh, next, so we'll we'll come back to that one. <laughs> okay, next. This is now starts to feel uh, more recent. This is just a few years old. Next. And I think there's just one more. This is uh, 2015. I just finished this painting a few months ago. Uh, so let's go back to that one. There. So the remarks that I've prepared for tonight's presentation have to do with following the muse, as I previously stated. But um, specifically, not the, not the process so much as um, what it's like to be open to the muse. And that's a funny statement. It seems kind of mystical, perhaps. And I don't really think of it in that way. I think it's simply a really good metaphor 
for what it's like to be open to inspiration and then following through on that. And uh, the second thing I'd like to talk about is uh, the effect that it has um, in a life dedicated to doing that. So, um, but before I do either one of those two things, um, let me tell you the story about this painting. And here's the, here's the context. <sighs> I had recently moved to this uh, apartment uh, in downtown Denver. Uh, really neat space. Um, and then I, I realized that there was a better apartment about to be have become available right next to it. So instead of uh, unpacking, I just left everything in the boxes. I just had to wait two, two weeks. Um, so I just didn't unpack. And it just so happened that in that period, uh, my girlfriend and I, my girlfriend at the time, and I broke up. And I also lost my job. So... <laughs> There I was, uh, no job, no girlfriend, no home, really. And, uh, but I, st- I wanted to uh, sort of suppress that uh, despondence, that looming gloom. So I decided to try to flip the script and try to have fun anyway. I went uh, snowboarding that day and, uh, with a friend, and it was okay. It was an okay time. But I came home to my apartment in boxes, and uh, that gloom started to set in. <laughs> but I wanted to push through, and I was like, well, everything's okay. I'm just going to uh, take a shower real quick. And um, I, turned, I turned on the shower, turned on the lights. At, another part of the context is that I had recently... Um, gotten this condition, this ear condition called tinnitus. And if I don't know if some of you have it, but if you haven't, it's a ringing of the ear, a constant, perpetual, never stops uh, ringing of the ears, and um, <laughs> which was adding to the anxiety of, of this situation. Um, so I, I said, you know what, this is, this is too much. This, is, I, I, this feels too... Uh, the reality of it started sinking in. I'm not in a good space. I'm going to take a bath instead because of you know the, the effects of, of the sound of the shower combined with the fan that was connected to having the light on. Um, there was no way of turning off the fan without turning off the light. It was just exacerbating the tinnitus. It was too much to take. So I decided to take a bath in utter darkness. <laughs> and then I had an interesting impulse. Once, once I got in, uh, all I could hear was my tinnitus, and I decided, okay, this is, this, this is a, a real situation. I'd better just uh, face up to it, and you know what? I'm not going to leave the bathtub until I receive some sort of message. <laughs> a vision um, that will tell me what to do about all this. Um, so I, I sat there and I, I remember I was trying to env- literally envision things, see in the darkness, maybe see figures, uh, something, uh, uh, exotic like that. And nothing of the sort happened. In fact, what happened was that the bathtub started getting lukewarm <laughs> and then it started getting cold, but I stuck to it. And, uh, the strangest thing happened. I, uh, I got, instead of a vision, I got this um, sentence, and it was fully formed, and it was perfect. I didn't think about it. It just arrived. And the sentence goes like this. <sighs> because I am corrupt, the world is corrupt. And I was, I was pretty excited about that. That sounds like something pretty deep. <laughs> And, uh, and, I, and I stayed there. You know, I, I felt like I had made a connection. Um, and the next one was, almost immediately, not, not even five minutes, was, um, if you want to see, 
open your eyes. And uh, like I said, you know, yeah, one can think of these things, but it didn't arrive through a, a, a process of uh, thinking. It just arrived complete. So I got out of the shower really excited. This is uh, important messages, and I don't want to forget them exactly how they were, uh, how they arrived. So I, I imagine the apartment is completely dark. I'm running around naked, looking for a pen among the boxes. I finally found uh, a pen, and I found uh, a piece of paper, and I jotted it down, except that I noticed that there were smudges on the paper, and I thought, that's, that's probably just my wet hand smudging the ink. But I wanted to, to see, you know. I turned on the light finally, because it was a new apartment. I didn't know where the light was. I finally turned it on. And I saw that there were red marks all over the, the paper, and I went back into the bathroom, and I turned on the lights, and the whole bathroom was covered in blood. Apparently, I had been, what I thought was a, a runny nose from snowboarding was a bloody nose. <laughs> so I was stunned. I was stunned. I had just received a message and there was blood all over. <laughs> and it seemed it seemed like um like a ritual had taken place. <laughs> and he, and here's also this is an interesting thought that came at that at that moment. I was like I should get my camera out. <laughs> Which I did and I took um self portraits of of my reflection in the mirror. And uh, a couple of weeks later, so that was, that's that. A couple of weeks later, my um, gallery curator said, I want you to participate in an important show we're having called Colorado Masters. I was flattered. And he said, but I want you to deliver a knockout. And I was like, oh, knockout? Oh, <laughs> I know. So this is that composition, and this is the result of that whole event um, now, I didn't want to make it explicitly about blood, so I actually toned down some of the tones. But you know, by the eye right there, that's a that's some that's a blood smudge, and by the nose as well, and then by the neck, that was all that was all blood, and uh, so that's how that one happened. So uh, go back to one of uh, the previous one, that one. So my previous work up to that point had all been people that were had their eyes closed. It was kind of this like inner um, reflection, and that was my thing, you know, my gig. Um, so that was the first. Go back to the, the other one. That was the first. That was a departure, which came directly out of a life experience and what I would ca- what I would call following the, the muse. I didn't. Uh, orchestrate that it sort of arrived so that's the point i wanted to make with that story so the two things that i said i was going to talk about is um how to be receptive to the muse and here's a series of of do's and and don'ts do's um the first one is let's i have i have an order here i think it may or may not be important but so the first one is kind of, it's like eros or eros. It's um, being open to the strange, the beautiful. And, what, and the question you have to uh, answer there is, what is it that moves you? If it doesn't move you, how beautiful is it to you? Uh, so that's number one. Number two is... Um, Permission to yield to the irrational, to the subconscious, to dreams, to intuition, um, which means, which implies a resistance to the concerns of ego, and things like, uh, will this sell? Will people like it? Will I seem important? Which you all, which you always have to fend off. I mean, that, those are temptations I still have to fight off. Um, so uh, it's uh, and also a, re- a refusal to contrive and instead incorporate the aesthetic experience and I'll, I'd like to be a little bit explicit about that 
what is the aesthetic experience? Uh, James Joyce talks about it in his novel uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, so when, I'll just give, I, have, I listed a few experiences here, but I'll just give one. It was about, um, I was taking, friend, uh, taking care of a sick friend, and uh, we fell asleep in the, in the same bed because uh, she, needed, she wanted com- to be comforted, so I was just, it was totally platonic, nothing. <laughs> um, but um, so we had been chatting, and we both fell asleep, and I suddenly woke up, and I was staring at a field of shapes and colors, and I was like, that's really interesting. What is that? And all of a sudden, it crystallized into my friend's face. Now, that took place over a period of about one second. But it, was, it stuck with me. It was a really interesting aesthetic experience, which is, which is in a way, what my work is about, is about um, abstract information coming together on a flat plane, depicting something that most of us can recognize. Um, And lastly, uh, the effects that following the muse has upon my everyday life. What what we can call the aesthetic life. First is, uh, (laughs) I find myself often sitting in front of a of an easel. Time and time again, which gives you a lot of time to reflect, to meditate, to pursue reveries, um, to ask questions. Think about it. I mean, when you when you're a painter, you're just alone all the time. And you can and when you're in silence, then that gives you that space to to introspect. And then um the other thing is when I don't feel like being in, in, um, with my thoughts, then I'll just feed. Um, it's like nourishment, you know, feed my mind with other works of art, usually literature, uh, poetry, uh, lectures about philosophy. I love philosophy, um, which, which uh, forms a positive feedback loop. You know, it's, it's, all, it's constantly being processed uh, I don't have as many answers as I have questions, but they work themselves into my artwork on some level, I'm sure. And um, so out of all this, you develop a kind of superpower, maybe, which is a souped-up ability to appreciate the beautiful. Um, it's conditioning for the sense of awe, which is a, which is a real gift. Um, you don't have, you don't naturally get it, or maybe some people do, but it's something that it's like a muscle that you exercise. And uh, very last, uh, last but not least, is um, the diminishing appeal for the consumerist impulse to inflate one's status through amassing objects. <laughs> so there it is. Uh, that's uh, what I call following the muse. Thank you so much, Lou. That was great. And our next speaker is Carl. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Carl. Thanks to Rebecca for for having me, and uh, thanks to Lou. And um, uh, I already forgot your name, Stephanie. Yeah, really, really awesome. Um, thanks for being here. I'd like to open my talk with a little presentation uh, and shake shake some jitters off. <laughs> so here we go.
Thank you. Um, and then I knew I was going to be totally out of breath after that. Uh, but uh, here we go. Um, kind of writes, wrote some stuff down, but I'll probably be going off script a little bit. Uh, let's see. So I'm a local musician, and I've been playing drums since I was nine. Um, <sighs> since, <laughs> since moving back to Denver in 2008, uh, after attending Berklee College of Music in Boston, I played with about 80, di- 80 different acts. Excuse me. <laughs> I knew I'd be going through this part a little slow. Um, <laughs> all around the country and Germany, um, along with having recorded on 40 different releases. Oh, I know, it's a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> uh, and after all this work, I realized that everything I do revolves around what I learned in my very first drum lesson. In fifth grade, we had the option to learn an instrument in band. Um, Up to age nine, uh, anything that I got into, uh, I was obsessed with it. And um, (laughs) my parents will attest, uh, it first first started with um, trucks, tractors, trains, and planes uh, that later moved on to dinosaurs, ancient Egypt, uh, Titanic, uh, j- journalism, cartooning, and then that finally got me to a uh, fascination with um, Sherlock Holmes. So, of course, <laughs> uh, so of course, I was going to be a detective um, at age nine. So, since I wanted to be Sherlock Holmes, I thought to play the violin. <laughs> Because Sherlock Holmes played the violin. <laughs> then, <laughs> then, like a flash, I remembered a rock and roll drummer I had seen on MTV uh, at a very early age. I think it was Tommy Lee uh, from Motley Crue. <laughs> um, so, so that image of the the drummer in the back and just like holding it down and like you know bandana and like ripped shirt and you know um, <laughs> that uh, at a, at a young age I thought that w- that would be really cool if. I <laughs> Um, but I never really thought of myself that, that I could actually be a musician or let alone be a drummer in a rock and roll band. Uh, so there I was with other drummers um, reading my first piece of music, which looks like this. This is the first. <laughs> this, yeah. <laughs> It was me and this book and a snare drum at age nine. And uh, this is the first pages I ever set eyes on. Um, and right here, aw. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, right, right here, it's uh, four dots, right, left, right, left, rest, right, left, right, left, so on and so forth. This is my first piece of music I ever uh, laid eyes on um, and, and played. Uh, <laughs> and it and it has the student counting and playing the quarter notes, so it's saying one and two and three and four and one and two and three. And four. Okay, again one. <laughs> um, so I learned that. So I learned that with all the drummers, uh, and then um, later on in that week, the whole band got together, and then the. The uh, music director counted off one, two, one, two, three, four, and then and then the sound, the sound that happened, um, <laughs> just then was was uh, very profound for me at, at that young age. I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, it uh, I don't know. I think it just turned turned something on for me. Um, let's see, what did I write there? Uh, <sighs> Yeah, it was profound. The vibration in the room, <laughs> uh, a tingling in the ears that fed an appetite I'd been longing for. Um, growing up in Highlands Ranch, um, I wondered what it would be like if everybody uh, lived in like like um, indigenous tribes. I kind of had this fascination with, with the rainforest at that age as well. Um, 
<laughs> uh, you know, and I'd always dream about what, you know, how cool it would be if we're like, kind of like right now, all in a room sharing experiences together, you know, loving, caring for each other. I always thought that environment would be, you know, more, um, more deeper than growing up in, in suburbia, you know, being isolated and, and transfixed on the television all the time. Um, and then, let's see here. So, um, yeah, so that moment in the band room when the band director counted off, for me it felt like I was a part of something um, much bigger than myself. Now I see how that first lesson is the foundation to everything that I play. Um, it's always it's centered around just keeping the beat um, and understanding the importance of sharing this concept through music Dance and beat brings people together in profound ways. Uh, after working with many acts in Denver, I see a community that is making music, art, singing, dancing, loving, and caring for each other. And it's exciting to be a part of and, and watch it grow. Um, <clears throat> so in, in conversations with, with people um, on South Broadway or on Colfax just hanging out at shows, a lot of people like to ask, so who are you playing with now? You're in like a million different bands, right? Um, <laughs> I hear that a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm like, well, not, not a million, but... <laughs> uh, so, so lately my, my response goes a little something like this. Well, things are starting to slow down, but this year included travel with Zach Heckendorf uh, and Dragon Deer. Dragon Deer um, just recorded with Mark Howard in L.A., um, the Chimney Choir wrote and performed Boomtown with the local ballet Wonderbound, um, and that album just came out. And uh, recently I finished a Christmas album with Katie Laurel. Come to think of it, there's another Christmas album on the way with uh, Bettman and Halpin, who I'm going to L.A. with later in, in, in January. And then uh, Science Partner has a side project called Vowels, spelled with all consonants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and last and certainly least, I just picked up a country gig every other Wednesday at the Metal Arc. <laughs> so that's what's going on with me lately. Um, I could go on, but even I start getting tired listing off events that are on my Google calendar. Um, to me, this is just chasing what I love to do, uh, which is play drums. Over the years, it's been incredible to see this passion drive the course of my life, and it has allowed me to weave webs with many other passionate, creative people building the kind of village I dreamed of as a kid. <clears throat> what I'd like to do now is give you a snapshot into the web I've been spinning um, that brought me here today. So I'm going to use this whiteboard and kind of try and diagram, diagram some things and explain kind of yeah, how, how I got to here. So, all right. Uh, <laughs> um, summer 2007, after my first year at Berkeley, I came back to Colorado, met singer-songwriter Andrea Ball. So, we'll start with Andrea Ball up here. Uh, let's see. And then, I was trying to rehearse this earlier today, and I was like... I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how I had musical connections through high school friend, bandmate Nelson Bernard. He called me up while I was at school that year and asked if Ryan Brasher could stay while he was checking out the school. Ryan and I hit it off really well, and I was appealed to the fact both Ryan and Andrea had original songs I could make original beats to. Um, so, Ryan Brasher up here. Slash Eleanor. We later, we later made the band Eleanor. After, named after a friend of ours. Um, and then... Through Andrea, I met Katie Laurel at the Metal Arc, actually, um, who I did shows with. And then uh, one, of the, one of those summers, we played a show in Burlington and met the band Haunted Wind Chimes. Um, and, and they're a really awesome band. Uh, I met uh, Desi and, uh, and Inea from that band, and just recently they called me up to do a side project with them um, called In Plains. Which, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, recordings on the way. Hunter Winchens in planes. And not all of this is totally chronological. I'm going to be skipping all over the place uh, to try and explain this to you guys. So, um, Katie Laurel, let's see. Uh, in Boston, I was playing with a band called Dotbox uh, every, every week at Harvard. And then, uh, and then it was also in a band called Estima, which is like a Middle, Middle Eastern fusion project. Uh, <laughs> and um, let's see. So this was like 2007. Uh, Andrea and Ryan had original songs um, through, uh, yeah, and then, oh, also through Katie Laurel, I've met Bettman and Halpin. So like I said, I'm on both of their Christmas releases this year. Um, let's see. And actually through Katie, I, I met, um, young Zach Heckendorf, who I've been playing with quite a bit. All right. You guys following along? Okay, good. More to come. Um, so let's see. Uh, that summer, 2007, Andrea brought Ryan and I to Springfield, Missouri that summer to record Beat Beat Bound, um, I'd already record, recorded a full length with, with Estima in Boston. Um, going back to school, I practiced as much as I could and found I was drawn to this kind of indie music um, more than anything else that I was playing at school. Um, I was more appealed to this, excuse me, uh, serve the song kind of playing. Um, after all, all I ever wanted to do was play in a band and get famous. <laughs> uh, that year back at Berkeley, my band Dotbox was playing every week at Harvard. Uh, we played in Florida for spring break. Estima played my first gig in New York. Um, at school, I got to spend a lot of time with Jamie Haddad, percussionist for Paul Simon, and he opened my eyes to a world of percussion and a way of making music I'd never, inter- never internalized before. Um, He would always say, Carl, you just got to get really good at one thing and be better at that one thing than anybody else. (laughs) Um, He was obsessed about the concept of mastery and what all it took to be a master of something. Long story short, I decided I wanted to master doing the side guy drummer thing with with Andrea Ball and Ryan's band, Eleanor. Uh, I always thought I'd go back to school, but I never did. Um, summer 2008, back in Denver, I quickly started touring with Berkeley alum Gabriella Weez. She goes up here. We'll call her Gabby. Um, and through Gabby, met David Reinhardt over here. And thanks to David, I'm, I'm here today. <laughs> or speaking in front of you today. And still alive. So... <laughs> <laughs> so. Thank you, David. <laughs> uh, uh, who I later introduced Ryan to. And through David and Ryan, I met John Common um, at the Laughing Goat up in Boulder. So that summer, that summer quickly turned into a very busy year um, as I started touring with Gabby uh, quite a bit. Um, and then through John Common, I met uh, bassist Casey Sidwell, who I currently play with in Dragon Deer as well. Um, after David recorded his solo albums and after a five-week Gabby tour, David introduced me to his new band, Jimny Choir, who is also in the audience as well. Um, <laughs> so that goes on the board. They had just finished recording their first EP, and David was very excited about it, and it's called Feather. And I, I played chairs i think one yeah one of those afternoons we recorded all of us banging on chairs <laughs> on the floor um anyway uh let's see two years before that i'd met 200 million years through a show with eleanor and started making music with them after a tour uh to seattle that put ryan and i in financial distress um. <laughs> <laughs> That was then, this is now, all good. (laughs) Uh, 200 million million years, that was a band I was very, very passionate about once Eleanor kind of started fizzling out. Um, Holden Young Trio, who I had also met through through Gabby and through some Berkeley alum, which include Io and Megan Burt. And last winter I did a tour with Megan Burt to a bunch of prisons in Pennsylvania. And that was very eye-opening. 
Um, and let's see. I started playing with Chimney Choir more frequently, and there was a time we were touring a lot. Uh, Chimney Choir introduced me to Jeff Porter in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and then he later, he's, he's moved to Denver since then, and uh, he's got a group called the Claptet, which is where I learned that, that piece that I performed in the beginning. Um, and he also had me sub... He's also in a band called Inner Oceans, which I think is just about to blow up, so keep your eye out for them. Um, and I did, like, two gigs with them before. Just to let you know. Um, <laughs> through, through 200 million years, I'd meet Tyler Dupre, um, who I'd later be in a band with called Science Partner. Um, let's see here. 200 million years. <laughs> Tyler Dupre. I don't know if any of this is legible, but... I don't know, it's been very interesting. I don't know, just so you know, these are all the bands I've been playing with. And how, how it all kind of came to be, it was certainly, you know, through one thing led to the next, led to the next. Um, okay, let's see here. Science Partner. Uh, 200 million years, I also met Kim Baxter, and we started a drum jam at Three Kings every week called Drum Club. Um, let's see, Kim Baxter... Baxter. And then through Kim Baxter, um, she referred me to Eric Halberg, who's also in the room, uh, when he was looking for a drummer to be in the Swayback. Um, at the time, I was playing with the Oak Creek Band from Flagstaff. So, Oak Creek Band uh, and Swayback. But because of Swayback, then I wasn't really able to go on tour with Oak Creek, and so they, they let me go. So that was fine uh, in the long run. Um, uh, uh, the t uh, but through Oak Creek, I met Seth Evans, who also started uh, the band Rossonian. Uh, and I played on some recordings with them and did some touring with them as well. Uh, let's see. And then... Uh, while I was playing with the Swayback, an old friend who I met jamming in high school, uncle of Curtis, friend of Zach Heckendorf, and friend of Chris Tetzelli, referred me to Zach's gig. Um, so then I started playing with Zach Heckendorf. Oh, he's already on the board. Sweet. Um, let's see. And Casey Sidwell, who I mentioned earlier, he's also, he was also on that gig as well. We recorded Speed Check by Aircraft, and this year have just finished up touring for that record. Um, however, because of a tour with Zach this last May, Rossonian had to find a permanent replacement for that band. So, um, you know, kind of getting swoop-swapped. Uh, Swayback, in 2010, Swayback went to New York for CMJ, but then Interrelations brought the band to a close by the end of the year. Eric started playing guitar and jamming with Cole Rudy, who I'd all already met when he tried out for Andrea's band years ago, um, Eric asked if I wanted to be in their new band, Dragon Deer. I said yes, because I say yes to everything. <laughs> and, uh, and also because they're, they're playing righteous music as well. So, um, uh, Casey, oh yeah, uh, Casey's also on that gig. Uh, and since playing Red Rocks and a festival in Big Sur, we won a battle of the bands, which brought us to Telluride, which through a video from that got us to Germany this last summer. And like I mentioned, we just got back from a recording with Mark Howard in Topanga Canyon, who produced Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind. <clears throat> that was a rad experience as well. So, cool, kind of full circle a little bit. Um, and there's just sort of, you know, I could, I could go on and on and, and on, and there's plenty of other uh, side projects and people that I've been playing with in Denver over the last couple of years. Um, yet, when I think back on that first drum lesson, I didn't have the slightest clue the impact this would have on my life. Um, Chasing my passion, let's see, and at, yep, and at this, yeah, yep, chasing my passion for drums and percussion, I have been a part of this greater artist village here in Denver, which has enabled me to build a reputation for being the hardest working musician in Denver. Um, I'm grateful for all the failures and accomplishments that have allowed me to share my passion with others. Um, Andrea's producer for Dial Tone, uh, Nathan Johnson, talked about the artist always living on the tripping edge, a path filled with rocks and boulders, and somehow you have to make your way to a summit that is completely out of sight. 
It's about learning to fall and pick yourself up, only to do it again and again and again. This is my story of my time in Denver, and I hope it speaks to the potential that a city like Denver has. David from Chimney Choir once said, Man, it's like you're married to seven different bands. <laughs> or, in a way, it is like being married to a lot of different people. Um, and not one personality is the same, so I pride myself on being able to see what's necessary for a band at any given point and be the support for a creative vision. Which, for me, all boils down to the ability to just hold a beat. Um, let's see. People. People ask, Carl, do you have your own project? Or what's your favorite project? Um, I, don't, I don't have a favorite project. Um, but I have been dreaming up some, solos, some solo music. Um, and uh, also d- certainly dive into a lot of solo percussion at a high school class I teach um, in Boulder. And th- I got that gig through, through David, <laughs> who put, put me in touch with the person that was looking for, for a percussion class. Um, So, anyway, uh, I'd like to close out my talk with uh, a little demonstration of some some solo percussion stuff that I've been working on, if you don't mind. Thank you. One sec while I get this set up. Thank you. You guys have all been very, very attentive, and I, I appreciate you guys being here. side of the room. Can I have you guys clap?
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.